Doreen, he's going to be with us till I think the end of August. So um, give me your attention as we read. Morning, everyone. Uh, the scripture passage this morning will be from Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 14, and you can find that on page 1655 in the Bibles in your pews. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then, he gathered around him, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they had been staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Thanks, Chris. I want to play a song for you that I wrote for this sermon. I'm just kidding. I, I'm t I don't know if I don't play the piano. That was a good one, right? <laughs> Man, I've been down with this cold for like three and a half days, especially when it was time for me to do the dishes and laundry and stuff like that. And um, had nothing to do with that. Um, so I'm gonna, I might be a little, uh, a little, anyway, let's just jump right in. We're gonna be um, going through the book of Acts for the next few months here at High Point Church. And um, you may be wondering why we're going to do that. That would be a valid question, in my opinion. And it's, it's, there's a number of reasons. One is that there, there's no book like Acts in the Bible. It's just one of a kind. And that's actually true in terms of the whole world. There's really no book quite like the book of Acts in the whole world. It, the, the most historically effective thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, as far as we can tell historically, is the Christian movement. 
And this is the only historical document that exists that records the beginning of it. That's just a fact. Um, have you ever wondered if you're a Christian and you've read the Bible some? Have you ever wondered what it would be like if there, were, if there were four acts? Like there was a Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John acts? I'd be, wow. Um, but there isn't. There's just the one. Um, and in God's providence, he has put this in here, and it, has, it allows us to help the, the entire Old Testament, the work, life, and ministry of Jesus, and then all the epistles and writings of the New Testament, it brings them all together in a way that we would be just muddled and confused if this book did not exist. And so it's incredibly important for biblical literacy, just understanding the Christian faith. It actually tells us something we can't learn any, anywhere else about how— how Christian faith took over the world in a lot of ways. And um, it's actually kind of an exciting story. I wish I could go back and read it again for the first time. But even going back and reading it for like the 50th time, it's actually kind of exciting if you care at all about God. Um, and in addition to all of those, the most important is that it's, it's the Word of God written. That God inspired it to be written, to be included in the scriptures so that we could learn from it. If, when you get to chapter 2 at Pentecost, there's this point where all the people are speaking. There's these, all, they're all Galilean Jews, and they're speaking in languages from all corners of the world, and people are hearing it in their own language. And, and one of the first things that happens is some skeptic says, now nah, they're drunk. Right? And one of the first things that happens in Peter's first sermon is he starts with the skeptics, and he goes, listen— you can't get a good Bloody Mary in Jerusalem at 8.30 a.m. Everybody knows that. <laughs> right? He says, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Right? So, but here's what it is. And when it comes to the book of Acts, there has been a good bit of skepticism that's swirled around about it. Um, and I think partly because of how important it is in the canon of Scripture and in understanding what, what God has said. In the, uh, the era of biblical criticism, which goes back to about 1640 with Spinoza, but it goes through till the, the modern where people, instead of being criticized by the Bible, it's fun to criticize the Bible instead, you know, get it off of you and onto it. Um, there was a time, especially in the middle of the 1800s, where it w there was this kind of sense like, you know, Luke got a bunch of things wrong, he wasn't very careful, we know so much, and two of the were considered the towering minds of biblical criticism of the 1800s, F.C. Bauer and Adolf von Harnack. Von Harnack, during his lifetime, was voted by the German people the smartest man in Germany. There were other options in Germany at that time. And, and yet a theologian got that honor, right? Um, Bauer said about certain statements in the next, can only be looked at as intentional deviations from historical truth in the interest of the special tendency which they possess, which we should argue is a barely intelligible English sentence, but in his defense it was probably translated from something else. And von Harnack said that Acts is both a great historical work because there are no, hardly any other historical works from that era. So if you wrote a historical work, it's by definition great because there's only like six, right? But then he says, and that Luke affords gross instances of carelessness and often complete confusion in the narrative. Right? Um, one of the reasons why I quote these two is because since about 1880, we've known that that's a ridiculous view about Acts, and modern critical scholars no longer use those kinds of arguments because 
what happened between 1880 and the present is that archaeology went from basically a glorified treasure hunt to a science of understanding what happened in the ancient world. And so when these guys were talking, this is what archaeology was. Hey, let's go to Egypt and get a bunch of those statues and bring them back and put them in the British Museum. That was the science of archaeology. It was a treasure hunt, basically. And since then, we've begun to excavate things with very specific scientific parameters to figure out what actually happened. And in every situation in which Luke said something and people were like, I'm not really sure that's true, we have found out that he was right. And it was actually the Bowers and von Harnacks of the world that were ignorant in their criticisms of the book of Acts. There, there is no historical problem in the book of Acts. Now, there are a lot of assumptions you can bring to the table about what must have been happening, and you can criticize based on certain speculations about certain sentences. If this means this and that means that, then these things would be in odds. But there is no actual problem in the book of Acts. Um, this is a cobbled together—oh, sorry. Let me, let me read the introduction to Luke, because Luke acts as one work, Right? And so sometimes, because we have John in our Bibles, between Luke and Acts, we read them as different books, and we forget what happened in Luke 24 by the time we read John, or um, Acts chapter 1. But this is how Luke starts the two books. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. The word is Jesus in that context. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Um, I cobbled together a bunch of things from John Stott's introduction to the book of Acts into this quote, which isn't an actual quote, other than it's a quote of me and Stott and so on put together this way so you wouldn't have to listen to me talk about it for 10 minutes, but just read it for one. In ancient works concerning multi-volume works, like Act, Luke Acts, the, perfor- the preface of the first was a preface for the whole, and Luke claims to have been careful in his investigation and writing so as to make his work trustworthy and to afford the reader certain knowledge. Luke claims that the events are historical. Luke claims that he got his information from eyewitnesses. Luke claims his writings was the result of his own personal research. His research included both those who have done extensive personal research and who were themselves eyewitnesses. He makes clear that the result of reading his work is meant to be, is meant to create legitimately certain, legitimate certainty about the things we have been taught. There are numerous reasons to expect Luke to be a reliable source. Luke was himself a doctor, someone who'd gone through rigorous empirical training. He was profoundly literate. His stylish Greek is one of the most complex in the Bible. He was personally present in many sections on the Apostle Paul. Luke writes as though he is there personally. He says, we did this and we went there. Finally, Luke was in Palestine for the two years of Paul's imprisonment at Caesarea, which is in the later portion of Acts, giving him ample time to do research on the life of Jesus in Israel and to consult with the other apostles. Now, this last part is a direct quote from Stop. Thus, the events which had been accomplished, witnessed, transmitted, investigated, and written down were, and still are, to be the ground of Christian faith and assurance. Part of the reason to look at the book of Acts is because 
it was the desire of Luke and the desire of the Spirit inspiring Luke that we would have a ordered, clear, accurate, historically reliable, persuasive, and convincing source by which to know that that which we have been taught about Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and the implications of it in the formation of this thing called the church, is certain and reliable. Now, there are reasons why I want to preach this together with you. Why are we doing it now in the life of High Point? And honestly, the, one of the easy reasons is just, if you look at our mission, our core values as a church, and you look at the book of Acts, they just, they work. And that's not a coincidence, right? Um, high Point, we get what we're supposed to be as a church from the Bible, and the Bible is consistent. And so you go to Acts, and there it is. But as you go through, what you'll see is over and over and over again in the book of Luke, what the gospel is, what the message that we believe in comes up again and again. Its connection to the Old Testament, therefore, and therefore the unity of the whole Bible is expressed in the book of Acts. You'll see some of that today. The centrality of community, that you were not meant to try to serve, love, and follow Jesus by yourself. That from the very beginning, everyone who believed in Jesus was brought together in relationship with one another into a new living human organism called the church. That prayer and sacrifice is everywhere in the Bible. That people, when things happen, people look to God. They ask God for help, and they, and they act sacrificially on the basis of principle. They don't act pragmatically and do whatever the, whatever the heck they think will work out for them. There's contextualization where the, the gospel goes from these Galileans to the Jewish Jerusalem to kind of a mixed racial Samaria. It jumps into Greco-Roman culture in places like Antioch, and then it moves towards the higher culture of Rome in those places as it fans out. And, and it morphs in each case to be slightly different, but the core of the gospel and the message of the truth stays the same. Just like we're going to have to do that in Madison, we, we see really important things about leadership in the church what a leader looks like. How do we identify one? How should they lead? What, what does that mean? How do we follow, and when should we stand against their leadership? There's a huge focus on sharing the message of Jesus throughout the whole book of Acts. That that's essentially what it is we're doing here. And lastly, it's a book that's very intergenerational and multicultural, and the emphasis on, of those two would actually be on multicultural. The issue of race and ethnicity and those kinds of things are one of the biggest problems for the church to get over. The first great controversy in the church was ethnic and racial. And they got past it. They solved it. And I think it'll have a lot to tell us. Um, I've talked to a number of people um, over the last week and a half about— the sermons we did on, on church and society and, and whether or not I adequately talked about race. And there were some people that said that I didn't even talk about it. And there were other people that said that I, they heard everything they wanted to hear and more. Um, and it turns out there's a broadness in perspective among lots of people. Um, but if you haven't heard as much as you wanted to, it, this is going to come up in Acts because Acts will bring it up. God will bring it up in his own word and we'll deal with it more then. And hopefully you'll hear some of the things you're hoping to hear. In order to orient ourselves rightly for the book of Acts, I think we need to remember what comes at the very end of Luke. This is the very end of Luke. 
Then he, Jesus, opened their minds, the disciples and Christians, so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, meaning written in the Old Testament. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and, meaning, I'm still telling you what was already prophesied in the Old Testament. So he's arguing, not just his own life, death, and resurrection is told in the Old Testament, but this next thing that comes after and is also in the Old Testament, and God had planned it for a long time past. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name, the Christ's name, to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And they, then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So you can see as, as, as Luke comes in, there's a small overlap. Luke goes through the very the ascension, and then he starts just before the ascension of Jesus. And the focus here is that there is a great commission in Luke, right? See, when we talk about that Jesus wanted to send Christians out into the entire world to share the message of the gospel with everybody, we often quote Matthew 28, 19, right? Because that, that's just because Matthew's literary version of go out and make disciples of all nations is kind of like the cutest. But it doesn't mean that that's the only place that is. And sometimes people get that impression because that's the only vo- verse we ever quote. But it says, whoops, wrong button. But it says right here, Jesus says, look, it was already in the Old Testament. That means Jesus is saying the Great Commission is in the Old Testament in numerous places. And he says the Old Testament says that the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And the Old Testament says repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations, in his name, to all nations. And then he says, the Old Testament said that was going to happen, and you guys are the only people who have witnessed it personally, so you do the logic. Right? What's the logic? It's going to happen. Somebody is going to witness to this, and it turns out you're the people who have witnessed it. So who will likely be doing the witnessing if it's going to be witnessed to and you're the witnesses? See, see, Jesus, Jesus assumes a slight amount of intelligence on our behalf because that has to be deduced from this. But it's right there, right? What I want to look at this morning is, yes, in Acts 1, 1 to 16, the main point is Jesus saying, you are going to be my witnesses in the whole world. And it is true that the main burden of this text is to say to them and to say to us directly, that we, we are here to bring the message of Jesus. He, he said in that verse that, that, that salvation through repentance and faith would go to all people, right? Um, but what I want you to see in this text is that, that Jesus prepares them for this. So that if, if you, if something's happening in your life where you really could care less about whether or not you should go and share the message of Jesus, I want you to understand another thing in relationship to that thing. That is, is that Jesus prepares people for what he demands of them. 
And you can see that in a number of places in this text. I want to just look at four this morning. The first is that he prepares them by saying something really actually inspirational. And you know me, I love inspiration and inspirational quotes and so on. And I, I noticed something this week in this text I had never noticed before. It was just one word, and it had never struck me before, but it's, it's cataclysmic, okay? Now listen, listen to this first sentence. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven— Right? And then it goes on after giving straight. Right? So, wait. Hold on. I mean, think about, think about this now. This is logically deductive. This isn't—I'm not speculating. Began refers to when. What's the ending of the began time period in this verse, right? He began to do and teach until—this is participatory. The day he was— taken up to heaven. So the ascension, right? When he went up to heaven. So what that means is, what Luke is saying is that Jesus, his incarnation, his birth, his life, his teaching, his miracles, his example, his explanation of the gospel, his confrontation with religious leaders, his arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, burial, His rising, his speaking of the kingdom of God, his ascension, all of that is referred to as the beginning. Think about that. The beginning of what? Right? What what that's saying is, if you read the book of Acts properly, Luke is saying in the very first sentence, is that all of the finished work of Christ— is the beginning of something. And you are living in the thing it began. Think about that. Think how great a thing it was that Christ has done and accomplished. And this was the beginning of the thing that he was going to give to everybody who believed in him throughout a period of time leading up to the full coming in of the kingdom of God. That was the big thing. And that he was giving to a people to do. That would be, if you care about Jesus and you think Jesus is great, that would be very inspiring. Right? And that's designed to prepare us for what we need, for who we're going to be, for what we're going to do. That everything Jesus did is just the beginning that led up to what he was going to give these people and give us to do. Right? The second thing is, Jesus was very intent on being very convincing that he was very alive. And this is important because I know that there are some people who come to faith, but then as time goes on, they sort of come to believe that Christianity is a pretty decent way to do life. And they kind of, you know, they get a little cagey on like, oh, is everything exactly right? But like, I'm, this is a good way to live my life, and I'm, it's probably true, and I'll probably go to heaven, right? Um, that is not Jesus' intention for you or for me. Jesus, it says, Luke tells us, went way out of his way 
to make his risenness enormously persuasive and convincing so that we could be certain about it. That's what it says. It says in verse 3, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. When you, if, you read Act, if you read Luke 24, Luke really focuses the last chapter of his gospel on these. He gives, he gives five different episodes in, in Luke 24 of Jesus appearing to people after he had been risen from the dead, including saying, okay, wait, you don't really, you don't get it. Okay, give me some food and I'll eat the food. And when I eat it, you won't think I'm a ghost. You realize that I am flesh and blood. He says, touch me, feel my body that I'm, I'm corporeal. Like, he goes out of his way. And even the appearing to Jesus on the beach, which happens in John's gospel, is mentioned in Luke's gospel in passing, right? It says, it says, um, it says that Peter, you know, he'd, he'd appeared to Peter and doesn't say anything more about that, but that's recorded in John's gospel. And then it just keeps going. And, and, it, and it keeps pointing towards Jesus saying, do you understand now? Do you understand now? And it keeps moving towards finally them understanding the significance of his resurrection. But he goes through all kinds of events and actions and appearances and so on. He teaches them. He eats in front of them. He has them touch him. He tells Thomas to actually put his hands inside of his wounds so that there would be an overwhelming, extraordinarily persuasive experience that they, had, they knew absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is alive. And that is part of the preparation you will need for everything that happens in your life, not just being a witness to all nations that we're meant to be as the church, but for everything that happens in your life, for you to double down on and really be a Christian— you, you would just, you need to know that the Christ lives. And he does. And Luke specifically lingers here at the beginning of, his, beginning of this book to tell us, just in passing, that he did many things to be extraordinarily convincing that he was alive. Do you believe this? The third is, is that during that time period, he talked more about the kingdom of God. In this context, it is not referring to the moral kingdom of God. It is referring to the ultimate, fully seen, and fully realized kingdom of God. And you'll see that in the next point because there becomes a confusion about what now is for. But he explains to them that the, the, the thing talked about in the Old Testament where God will ultimately reign over everything and there will be no more death and there will be no more racism and there will be no more poverty and the world will be the way it's supposed to be because the one right king really will rule over everything, that that kingdom of God will be restored in a new physical recreation that we will enjoy forever. That really is happening and here's how it's all connected. He took time to talk about that. Because he wants us to look forward to it. Jesus did not think looking forward to what we call heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, as an opiate or as an escapist tendency or as something that would get us unhooked from the real life we're meant to live right now. But it was meant to give us so much courage and take away our fear about what was coming so that we could live absolutely fully right now. 
His belief was that his belief was and is that if we understand what has happened, his life, death, and resurrection, that he is alive. And if in the future we recognize that there is going to be a kingdom in which Christ rules entirely, and we will be there, and if we also realize, and we'll talk about this next week, that in the meantime, he's going to give the gift of the power of God, the Holy Spirit, with us. If we are comforted and strengthened by those realizations of past, present, and future, we can live fully now with courage and humility and humor and fun and truthfulness and, and wisdom and substance, right? And so he took time to talk to them about the kingdom of God, right? All right, move on. And then lastly, he just simply says, we're going to be his witnesses everywhere. One of the interesting things about Luke is that you see in Matthew, the, the Great Commission, that is when Jesus commissions us to go out in the world and to share the message of, his, of, his, of repentance and faith and salvation, that we can know God and all these. In Matthew, it's an imperative. He says, go out and do it. Go make disciples of all nations. In, in Acts, he doesn't. He just says it's going to happen. And it, the, the imperative is implied. He says, you are going to be my witnesses. And it's kind of ambiguous because we're, we're supposed to take it as an imperative. He's telling us to do it, but he's also saying it's just—we're going to do it, right? And we're going to find out later in Acts that if we need to get a kick in the behind that's enormously painful to do it, he will provide that. Okay, that's in Acts 8 or 9, I think. But he says this, So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so being his witnesses is predicated on what? In this text. Something precedes it that tends to seem, sounds like it makes the other happen. That when what happens, we will be his witnesses. When we receive power from the Holy Spirit, we will be his witnesses, right? Now, one of the things you'll notice there is they say, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, is Israel going to become the kingdom of God on earth? Now, and Jesus says no, but note here, he does not claim that this is all wrong-headed. And he doesn't say that there will never be a kingdom. He just says, no, it's not— they say, is it time? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. The idea that there would be a kingdom restored to Israel is not what Jesus has a problem with. The thing that Jesus has a problem with is that there are two very different kinds of authority. One is the, the authority to coerce, right? If there is a kingdom with a king and you possess the authority of that king, you're going to go out and bring, bring the nations into submission through the force of coercion because you have a kingly authority, right? And, and Jesus makes the point here that is not the kind of power we were about to receive. The thing that, we, that he says we as the church was, we're going to receive is power. And it's a very powerful power. In fact, it is the power of God himself. There is no larger power than the power of God himself. But it's not the coercive power of administrative control and authority. He said, we're not, you're not, that's not what's happening right now. What is going to happen is you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and you will be witnesses. Now think about this. What kind of power does a witness require? Right? Well, what is a witness after? Right? A witness is somebody who tell, tells what happened and allows the people who hear it to respond to it one way or another. And the people who hear them giving their testimony, right, saying this is what happened, those people either believe it or they don't believe it, and they respond or they don't respond. So the power a witness needs is the power of persuasiveness, that what they say would be compelling, and that the people receive it, who receive it, would be compelled. Right? It's a psychological, it's a spiritual power that's needed for me to say something and for you to hear it and be convicted by it and believe it's true and want to respond to it, for it to move you inside, right? That is a spiritual power, and that is the power that Jesus promises because it is exactly the appropriate power that a witness requires. We're not little kings. Our identity is we belong to him, but our role is a role of witness. We're, we're offering a message to a world. And when we offer a message to a world, there's a specific kind of power that goes along with that, and that is the spiritual power to be able to speak ourselves and an internal power that affects them, the hearers, and their ability to receive it. And if we want to be faithful to God, the kind of power we would want from him was one that helps us speak and helps those who hear it to receive it. And that is precisely one of the effects of the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that he has. And he promises that we'll receive that power in this era in which we live. When we read the book of Acts properly, what we will realize is is that between the ascension and the setting up of the kingdom of God is the era of the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? There, there, there are bookends offered in the first chapter of Acts. There is the ascension of Jesus, which is everything Jesus began to do, right? Which Luke uses as the cutoff. He doesn't use the resurrection as the cutoff of that period. It's the ascension. Ascension. When Jesus, after the 40 days, after he's like reset everything, gotten them ready, he, right? And so there's a soft start, and then the hard start is Pentecost, right? And then there's the kingdom of God. And between the kingdom of God, where there's a new kind of authority, and the ascension of Jesus, there is a time period in which the people of God will be witnesses in the whole earth. And the power that goes along with being witnesses is the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and acts in such a way as to be maximally persuasive through those who would believe and trust in him and do the work of lovingly and freely persuading all who would believe. That is the power that God has promised us. And we'll talk more about that next week. So let me bring it around like this. Um, have you, there, there are a few fairy stories out there in which, like, a fairy godmother will show up to, like, a little boy or something and give him, like, a knapsack. And inside the knapsack, there's, like, five things, right? And in the story, how many of those five things will the little boy use? All five, right? 
Always. It always works that way, right? If there's nine things in the knapsack, he uses nine things. If there's five things in the knapsack, he uses five things. It's that just, just the way fairy stories go. Fairies don't throw in an extra, you know, can of Coke just in case you get thirsty, okay? Like, it's very specific. And it's because that's part of our mytho- mythological mentality of like— When we're aided by someone greater than ourselves, they give us exactly what we need. And that comes from, I think, a kind of amnesia, but general understanding about the way the universe works. One of the things that I notice when I read the Bible, and when I learn about Jesus, is he doesn't seem to give us things to prepare us that we don't need. He doesn't seem to clutter up what he offers us with things that that, we could use them, we might need them, we might not. And one of the things that I tell people a lot is, I I say, listen, when the day comes where you, like, want your pastor there, you know, when you're in the hospital for the last time, or when you—that thing's happening with your kid that you dreaded, or you lost that job, you have no idea what you're going to do next, or you just cannot make any headway with your spouse, or whatever it is. At that moment, you need to already be who you need to be and already know what you need to know to survive and to thrive in that moment. Because when you get there, you can't, you can't, you can't construct while you're flying is the whole, right? You can't build the airplane while you're flying, okay? And life is like that. And sometimes we don't take preparation nearly serious enough. So I, when I coach basketball, one of the, one of the things that I'm always, I'm always more interested in practice than in the games. The games are supposed to be when we win or lose. It's the most important thing. Not for me. For me, practice is the most important because I cannot tell a sixth grade girl what to do if she doesn't already have the skill in a game. Right? I can't do it. It's, it's just not possible. They just, all you do is freak them out, right? And you and I have to have and be prepared by the things Jesus gave us to be prepared with right now. Not when something bad happens, not in the future, not when you're out of your 20s, not whatever—you need it right now, and you need all of the things that Jesus gave you to prepare you. And whether we're talking about us as the church, all of us being witnesses in the world, or whether it's you getting through Monday, you need to open your hands and heart and receive everything that God is offering you, and in this text— It's very clear what we need first and foremost, immediately before we go anywhere, right? We need to recognize that we are in the main course. We are in the big act. Everything Jesus did before this period of time between his ascension and the full kingdom of God is is that which is coming out because of what Jesus began to do. And we are in it right now. Your life is in the moment— We, we, we are not the unfortunate generation who was born long after the big action happened. This is the main act. This is the moment. Right? Jesus intentionally gave many proofs that he is alive so that whether you have to get through Monday or be a witness to the ends of the earth, you would do so with the knowledge that Jesus is alive. He promised that the thing that you need to be who you need to be, the Holy Spirit, he gives. We'll talk more about that next week.
He spoke about the kingdom of God so that we know what we're supposed to live toward now and we can be comforted that we will live in that eventually. Not so it pulls us away from the world we live in, but so we can be more fully part of it. And we can be encouraged by the fact that the kingdom of God will be fully all things and we will be part of it. And what we do now points forward towards it. And that we were destined from eternity past, and it was stated all through the Old Testament thousands of years ago, that we, when we received the Holy Spirit, we would be witnesses. We would point people to Christ and to the the redemption that comes through repentance and faith everywhere we go. And that's what we were made to be, and that's what we're made for, and whether we're living or dying. And so it will reframe your unemployment, and it will reframe your trouble with your kids, and it will reframe your problem with your finances, and it will reframe your dying, and it will reframe your unpopularity, and it will reframe everything in your life if you know that your purpose is that there is a message that Jesus bought that you possess and that he is giving to all people through you. And that how you bear everything and how you speak about everyone and how you live and share that out um, points to your purpose in that. If you will embrace those things and let them simmer into your character and mind and thought, that will prepare you for God knows what. Because listen, you are not privy to your future. I don't care how good your management or your futurist capacities are. You are not privy to your future. The only thing you have access to is the, the parts and points of preparation Jesus has offered you as one who does know your future. What I can promise you is what you will need you have right now given to you by Jesus. And if you will build the airplane now before it has to fly, if you will gather the themes in the knapsack and carry it with you on your journey, you will have it when you need it. Because Jesus always prepares us for what he will demand from us. He always gives to us what we will need knowing what life is going to do to us. Don't ignore it. Embrace it. Believe it. Receive that. Live it out. Figure out how to do it. Be mentored in it. And if that happens, we'll be ready for anything that happens and we'll actually live out that for which the, the whole Old Testament said we would be here for in this moment applying that which Jesus only began before he handed it off to us. Let's pray. Father, please help us to embrace the preparation that you've put before us, to be inspired by it, strengthened by it, persuaded by it. Help us to be full of faith and to be full of courage and humor and life and humility and boldness because we believe that you've given us something that you only began yourself and handed off to us, that you have 
given us convincing proofs that you are alive, that you've poured out your Holy Spirit exactly what we would need in this time, that you've pointed forward to a very real kingdom of God, a heaven that we can look forward to and hope for, and that you've made us your witnesses to all people. The great, you've given us the great dignity of being the messengers of redemption. And I pray that living in that would make us a powerful, loving, peaceful people. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing. Let's praise Him.